I invite you to take your Bibles, if you haven't already, and go to the 14th chapter of Hosea. This is the last message in this uh, wonderful minor prophet book. And today we're going to see how the prophet Hosea ends his important treatment with this concept that the ways of the Lord are right. Last weekend, my wife and I, along with Savannah, went back to the university that uh, Sarah and I graduated from and where we met for homecoming. We were um, getting ready for the parade that they were going to have, and uh, we got there a little early, and so we took Savannah through a little bit of a walking tour of our college experience. It was one of those sort of old man sort of moments, you know, where I'm telling her, no, this building wasn't here and that building wasn't there, and no, they actually didn't have internet back then, and you know, we had to walk up to class, you know, uphill both ways in our bare feet, you know, things of that sort. So we're just showing her, uh, you know, the various buildings that were built, the rock that used to be in one spot that was painted on campus and things of that sort. And then there was this little grove of uh, pine trees. And I said, Savannah, see that spot right there? There used to be a bench that was there, And that's the exact spot where your dad decided to marry your mom. And she said, aww. (laughs) And it's true. What happened is um, I was on a prayer walk. My relationship with Sarah was such that I knew that it was uh, like it was either going to go towards marriage or not. And this was uh, the moment when I had to decide, are are we headed that direction? And um, some of you think this less than romantic, but what I did is I took a yellow legal pad and I drew a line down the middle. (laughs) It's a true story. Sorry, for those of you who've been around here very long, this will not be a surprise to you about me. And I, uh, I listed out all the strengths of our relationship, what I love, and I list a few of the things that I didn't like about our relationship. And I remember sitting there thinking, and I prayed this, Lord, if I decide to marry Sarah, everything that's on the right side of the column, I have to be okay with for the rest of my life. And, you know, some of those things have changed and some haven't. We've just learned how to apply God's grace to one another But getting up from that bench with that little legal pad, my heart was set, the decision was made, it was Sarah Ashbaugh that I would marry. And that was a defining moment. That little bench became a very significant moment in my life. My guess is that you have similar defining moments. Maybe it was a particular uh, relationship that you had with a coach in high school, maybe it was a, a class where sort of the light bulb went on, maybe an internship or Maybe a church experience or a missions experience that just kind of lit your heart aflame. If we were to hear each of our stories, there's various defining moments. Even if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, my guess is that you've got defining moments, things that positively and negatively happened in the past that sort of describe where you've landed even at present. The text that we're looking at today is a defining moment sort of text. Everyone who is a follower of Jesus essentially has the same defining moment, and Hosea 14 points us there. That defining moment, as defined in the scriptures, could be captured in one word. Everyone who becomes a Christian passes through this defining moment. It's the word repentance. Doesn't matter where you've come from or what your story is, Nobody becomes a Christian until they grapple with the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the repentance that follows. Hosea 14 tells us that the ways of the Lord are right. And the text even begins in chapter 14 and verse 1 with an important word, return. 
Now we're gonna unpack what those words mean and what their significance is, but let me just remind you why we've been studying the book of Hosea. And maybe you're just joining us at the tail end of this series. We're looking at this minor prophet book was written in the eighth century BC, and we've been examining it for four reasons. First, because the book of Hosea helps us to see the beauty of God's grace by feeling the scandal of it. Hosea is a book about a prophet that marries a prostitute and the way that he wins her back, and that becomes a a metaphor for God's love for his people. And so Hosea helps us to feel things that other parts of the Bible might not help us to feel in the same way. Second reason we're studying it is because many believers are simply unfamiliar with the minor prophets. Kind of fly over these books, don't read them, and some of you I've heard, you've been surprised how relevant the book of Hosea is to your life. I hope you'll read more of them. Third, Hosea addresses the painful problem of spiritual adultery. And can I just tell you that that problem didn't go away in the 8th century BC. It's still an issue that we wrestle with, the issue of idols and things that even within our own lives, and for that matter, within our own culture, that become so familiar to us that we forget how wrong they are. And then finally, Hosea foreshadows the gospel. We, we see in an Old Testament book little glimpses of what comes in full fruition in the New Testament with the person and work of Jesus. And so in so doing, we're able to look back through the lens of the New Testament and to see these foreshadows of what would come to us in the person of Christ. The theme for the entire book is simply this. God gives grace to wayward people because he's God. God gives grace to wayward people. God's gonna give grace to some of you today. And the way that he gives grace to people is by pointing them to the path of repentance. So this morning, we're gonna look at repentance, then restoration, and then reflection. Those three words will serve sort of as the guideposts for our time through this text. Look at chapter 14 and verse one. We see the first word. It's the word return. And is so often the case in the Old Testament, the first word of a particular chapter really sets the theme or the tone for the entire chapter. It says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. That word return in the Hebrew essentially means to turn from one thing to another. That's essentially what repentance is. If you're not familiar with the concept, or maybe you heard of it, but you don't really know what it is, it means that you once were walking one way and now you're walking another way. Or in the book of Hosea, in chapter two and verse seven, it's the first time that Hosea uses the word return, but he uses it in reference to Gomer, that she would return from her lovers to her husband. So the idea is this, Gomer, you can't have two lovers. You have to choose which way you're going to go. And the hope would be that she would return from her wayward ways and return to her husband. So all throughout the Old Testament, we see this word returning emerge, this word return emerging in order to communicate this, this dramatic transformation that's supposed to happen. The problem, though, is that Israel keeps stumbling. Verse one says, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. So here again is another sort of visual metaphor that we have of Israel that has a path, and they have the rocks of wealth and the rocks of their politics, and the rocks of their spiritual idolatry, and these things are sort of along their path, and they're not paying attention, and so they keep stumbling on these things. Can you think of the last time that you stumbled over something? It's kind of an embarrassing moment, isn't it? 
My wife and I were out on a run in Eagle Creek Park, and a particular path has some stumps that are there, and with the leaves and the spray paint that had kind of worn off, I didn't see one. And I'm running along, and my big toe just ran smack into that little stump that was, I mean, it wasn't even that big. And the next thing I know, I am flat on my face in the middle of this uh, trail. And my wife lovingly said, whoop. It's <laughs> like, first question, are you okay? I'm like, yeah. She's like, because that was a good one, right? <laughs> so the idea is this, there's, there's something in your way, and you're not paying attention, and all of a sudden, boom, you hit it. And that's the idea of what's happening in Israel. They're walking through life. And there's all sorts of pitfalls and things that could cause them to stumble, and they just don't see it. So the purpose of Hosea, frankly, is to shock us. It's meant to be something that that shocks the conscience. That's why you have a prophet who's marrying a wayward woman. Because the reality is, is that we can become so accustomed to our culture, we don't even realize how bad things are, and we need something to shock us. In our nation's history, as it relates to race relations, Selma, Alabama was that kind of moment. If you've seen the movie Selma or you know the history, if you don't, it's important for you to know. It's the story of three marches over Pettus Bridge protesting the killing of a man, black man, during a voter registration march a few weeks earlier. What happened is that the brutality of the local officials responding to that march over Pettus Bridge, along with the murder of a pastor in his home, was reported all over the country. People from all over the United States saw what was happening and it shocked the conscience of the country. And the result was the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Martin Luther King said this, Selma, Alabama has become a shining moment in the conscience of man. The confrontation of good and evil compressed in the tiny community of Selma generated the massive power that turned the whole nation to a new course. So Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama became a defining moment. And what Hosea is doing is trying to shock the conscience of Israel so that they could have a defining moment and turn back. In fact, part of what I hope happens in the context of this message and maybe throughout the book of Hosea is that lovingly and graciously your own conscience would be shocked and be able to think about, what does repentance look like in my life? What does repentance mean on a personal level? And are there things along my path and the way that I live that are creating this stumbling? Or you may here be here and not yet a follower of Jesus, and the whole reason you're here is because you've stumbled and stumbled and stumbled, and today you've come, and you're just like, I, I, I need some answers, I need some hope. And my prayer is that you'd find that in a biblical understanding of what repentance is through a relationship with Jesus. So, so what exactly do we mean by repentance? At a basic level, it means to turn from one thing to another. It's to turn from one's lovers to one's spouse. It means that you, you, you cannot have both. In the New Testament, the word for repentance is the word metanoia. It means to change the mind. It's, it means that your, your affections, what you see, the, the, the orientation that you have in life has been dramatically transformed. That when you see something, you see something different spiritually because of a movement of God's spirit in your soul. So that you see the world, you see yourself, you see everything radically differently. This happens in non-spiritual ways all the time. For instance, we had a, um, a pastoral retreat Monday and Tuesday and the food that we had was wonderful and there was a little dessert tray that we had um, which were a bunch of little uh, pieces of, um, of um, not cream cheese, 
uh, cheesecake, thank you, Liz, thank you, cheesecake. And um, as one of the guys were going to get one, somebody flipped over the box and they said, you know how many calories those are, right? Well, that just ruins the moment, right, for cheesecake, right? Like, that's 460 calories. And I was like, what? No, no, it's if you have six of them. Oh, okay, got it. So then what happens, though, is when you see the, the number of calories, it changes. You don't just see cheesecake. You see cheesecake and calories. When you see that, you can still enjoy it, but you also know you have to run it off, right? So your orientation for cheesecake changes because your mindset has been changed. You only saw it before as cheesecake. Now it's cheesecake plus 76 calories. That's the idea. There's a mindset change. When it comes to things spiritual, it means that we see the world, we see ourselves, we see sin, we see our successes, we see our failures, we see everything differently because of the metanoia that has come because of a relationship with Jesus. So here's a couple other things about repentance in the New Testament. Do you know that the call to follow Jesus always involved leaving the old behind? I could give you example after example after example that Jesus called people and they, they left their, their former ways and they went to follow Jesus. Jesus' message essentially was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And to be converted means that repentance must be a vital part of that conversion. So you become a Christian not just by putting your faith in Jesus, but by realizing that by putting your faith in Jesus, you're giving your whole life over to a new Lord and Master. Somebody now who dictates and controls the direction of your life. So you change. Doesn't mean you change in every way that you'd want to, but it means that somehow in some way you've truly changed. When we practice believer's baptism, baptism is in effect a symbol of and the first step in repentance. Did you know according to 2 Timothy 2 that repentance is a gift from God? That if you repent and turn, it's because God by his spirit has helped you to do so. Did you know that faith and repentance are linked? You could think of them really as the, the two sides of the same coin. That one must believe in Christ, but in believing in Christ, it means that one is also committed to following him. And the effect is that true repentance from true faith results in good works. So that one, if you never change and there are no good works in your life and nothing is materially different about your life, then the question is, what did you really believe in? As well, repentance is more than just feeling sorry. Sorrow and sadness do not necessarily mean that one has truly repented. And we'll look at a text about this in just a moment. And then finally, the rather scary text is in Hebrews chapter six that tells us that there are some who have so hardened their hearts, they've heard and not responded, they've heard and not responded, they've heard and not responded, that the Bible says that it's impossible to renew them to repentance, meaning repentance will not come anymore because they just don't hear it anymore. So when Hosea calls people to repent, it fits in this much broader framework that fills the pages of the entire Bible. Repentance is essentially the complete and irrevocable about face from one's past to a future that is now shaped by the reign of God. So what does repentance involve? We'll go back to Hosea chapter 14 and look at verse two. It involves words. It involves confession. It says, take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, so you're, you're throwing yourself at God's mercy, and what are you saying to him? You're saying to him, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good. 
and we will pay with bulls and the vows of our lips. The idea is, I'm gonna trust in you. So repentance means that you turn from trusting in yourself and you turn instead to trust in God. So if you're here today and you're at a desperate spot, you're almost there. If you get to the point in your life when you realize, I can't do this anymore, that's half the battle. And now the question is, will you now turn and say, I need instead for Christ to help me? Notice that they confess that they will not trust in former things like verse three, Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, which doesn't mean that God bans equestrian activities, but rather it means we will not trust in our military might. They won't trust in somebody else to rescue them. They won't trust in their power. And we will say, verse three, no more our God to the works of our hands. The idea is that we're turning from our idols we, we've, we've come to see the full effect of our waywardness, and we, we get it, and so we're turning. That's the idea. And then finally, they will throw themselves completely on the mercy of God. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Here's the message of Hosea. It is this, that God offers grace to wayward people. The idea is this, no matter where you've been or what you've done, no matter how long it's been happening, you can turn, God helping you, your life can change today. That's the message of the gospel, that's the essential hope of Jesus, and in genuine repentance, as we throw ourselves at the mercy of God, as we turn away from things that took his place, we then appeal to him for forgiveness, and God changes our hearts. One of my favorite verses about all this is found in 2 Corinthians 7. So if you have a copy of God's word, turn over there to 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. You need to see this in a Bible that you own, or maybe just Google 2 Corinthians 7.10, because there's so many times that when someone does something wrong, they feel really bad, they feel sorry, they feel regret because of the pain that it's caused or because of the consequences of what has taken place, and yet that person might not truly be repentant. 2 Corinthians 7 helps us with this. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Why, why is there no regret? Because the person wants what's at the other end of repentance so much more, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Then Paul identifies the characteristics of godly repentance. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, at every point you proved yourselves innocent in this matter. So if you're a Christian, can I ask you, does that sound like you? Did you know that repentance is a vital part not only of how you came to Christ, but repentance is a vital part of what it means to continue to be a follower of Christ? So many times people think of repentance as it's a, a thing that you do when you really messed up. But no, 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 that's true at one level, but you know what repentance is? Repentance is the daily practice of saying, I'm gonna turn from my sin and turn to Jesus. And do you know how Israel got in trouble? Here's how. They began to tolerate the little sin issues in their life and in their culture, and one step after one step, after one moment, after one year, after one king, after another, they found themselves way, way, way far from God. So far, it was hard for them to even hear him anymore, and eventually God has to send Assyria in order to really wake them up, to really break them. And here's what my hope is for you, that you'll listen on the first and second call of repentance, not when it's gotten to be 30 or 40. 
You can still come when it's 30 or 40, but when the voice of God is far more distant and far more familiar because you've grown accustomed to hearing things and not responding, oh friend, that's a scary place to be. Instead, repentance is to be the normative activity of the followers of Jesus. So the question would be, if you're a Christian, what's the sin that you're repenting of? Surely there's some. Be like, I can't think of any. How about pride? We'll start there. <laughs> The reality is there's all sorts of sins that are, are grabbing a hold of our soul all the time. Repentance means that we're turning. Even when you share the gospel with somebody, as I have opportunity to share the gospel, I incorporate repentance language into how I talk to someone about the gospel after I've told them about the need to come to faith in Christ. I'll also say something like this. Now, coming to faith in Christ means that Jesus is gonna take control of your life. That means that I'm sure there's some things in your life that right now you're gonna have to stop, things you're gonna have to turn away from. Can you think of any? Yeah, I can. And then over the next number of weeks, months, and years, there'll be other things that God's gonna identify in your life, and when the Spirit of God helps you to see those, that's called repentance, and keep turning from them. And invariably, I have people come back and say things like, hey, like that whole repentance thing, like I'm thinking like I need to share this message of the gospel with my friends, yes. And for that matter, I may need to find some new friends because I'm not sure that these friends are good for me, right? Hey, does repentance have anything to do with like what you watch in movies or like what you talk about or jokes that you laugh at? Yes. Does repentance relate to like kind of where I go and the things that I do? Yes. Does repentance relate to the things that I look at? Yes. And as the Lord begins to reveal those things, repentance and its fruits begin to be born. Friends, repentance doesn't stop, though, when somebody comes to faith in Christ. It continues throughout their entire experience of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So repentance, secondly, restoration. Hosea not only addresses the calling of repentance, but as is so often the case, what motivates repentance? You know how the Bible motivates it? By the attractiveness of what is on the other side. The Bible doesn't just motivate repentance because of what's wrong. While that's true, the Bible motivates repentance by virtue of imagine what your life would be like if you got free. Look at verse four. I will heal their apostasy. God will change their affections. Imagine the things that you love starting to change. How do you change what you love? You can't. How do you create appetites that aren't there? You can't. And what God promises is that he will heal their apostasy. Secondly, he will love them freely. Here's the thing, that you're even here today and God loves you. He loves you more than you can possibly imagine. That's why at times he's made your life hard and difficult. And then he says he will refresh them. Notice, he says, I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. Notice all these promises. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. His fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow and shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Oh, Ephraim, what do I have to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a green, evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. The idea is that God promises, I'm going to renew you. I'm going to refresh you. And he uses almost garden-like language. Because the idea is that God wants to bring his people back to the way that things were in the Garden of Eden. 
full of thriving and flourishing, full of peace, full of healing. Do you know why this sounds so glorious at one level? Because it is. God created you for mended relationships, not broken relationships. You're not going to run into anybody today who, when you ask them and you say, how was your week? No one's going to say, awesome, I lost three friends this week. (laughs) No one's going to say, how was your week? Awesome, I found out my boyfriend's cheating on me. We were made for harmony. We were made to love sexual purity. We were made to love conflict resolution. We were made to love harmony. Where does that come from? From God himself. And what's the problem? Sin has broken all of that. And what is the solution? The answer is for God to change the heart of human beings through a relationship with Jesus, which then turns them from broken relationships to restored relationships. It moves them from sexual impurity to purity. It moves them from words that wound to words that heal. And that transformation from one thing to another is the beauty of what God through his grace can do. So the Bible offers restoration. Some of you here, you're tired because sin makes you tired. You're tired of the lies. Keeping up with them. Did I tell the person that? Did I say that? Did I say that? And just, your mind's just spinning all the time. Tired of the manipulation, tired of the false promises. And in the Old Testament, there was this promise that was offered that there would come a day when God would take out the wrong heart and put in a new heart. Listen to Ezekiel 36. Here's the promise from an Old Testament prophet. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to obey my rules. The idea is that God, through the spirit, through the finished work of Jesus, makes it possible for true restoration to happen. He makes it possible for true repentance to actually take place. Another text in the New Testament, look at Romans chapter eight. In the New Testament, it sounds like a number of signature passages, and this happens to be probably the preeminent one of what it means to be free. So, in repentance, this turning, what is offered to you? A new level of freedom, that's what's offered. Forgiveness, cleansing, healing, mending of relationships. The power to be able to be reconciled, the power to be right with God, the power to sleep at night, the power of guilt being gone, that's what's offered. And that's what it means to return. This is why Paul says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen on that one? How about if I, can I say can I get a witness? Is that okay to say? My skin's a little too white for that, but that's all right. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order why? That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but they're in bondage. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. You're going to see this again. There's two paths. Path of death, path of life and peace. Path of bondage, path of freedom. And then by the Spirit of God, Paul says this in Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit, just listen to these words, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. What it means is this, if you do these things and these are true in you, there's no reason to have a law because these are a law to themselves. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So what does this mean? It means that there is a restoration offered to those who put their faith in Jesus and turn from their former ways to the ways of Christ's reign. And that doesn't just happen singularly when you put your faith in Jesus, but once you become a follower of his, it means that every day you're putting on this repentant sort of mindset. The challenge, though, is that some of us think that repentance is what we used to do, and that's part of the problem. Instead of realizing repentance is a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a continual returning. Imagine, imagine what it would be like to have a restored marriage, to have a pure heart, to know that you're forgiven, to see change taking place in your life, to be at peace with God. The reality is is that the grace of God knows no limits. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God can rescue anybody? Believe that no matter where they are, what they've done, no matter what happened last night, last week, or 10 years ago, no matter how far you've gone, that there is grace available and ready to you? This got pushed a little bit in my world this week. I went along with one of our police officers on a ride along to see a particular subsection of our community. Did you know that if you're on the sex offender list in the state of Indiana, appropriately so, you cannot live within a thousand feet of a school? And if you put on your application that you're on the sex offender list, most, many apartment complexes won't let you live there. The effect is that there are little housing units all throughout our city where there are clusters of people who are on the sex offender list. It's the only place that they can live. This brother was telling me this, and I wanted to see not only the place that these folks gather, but also to think and pray. So what do you do to try and reach folks that from a societal standpoint, because of their own deeds, are modern day lepers? Is the grace of God not available to them? Is there no way for the grace of God to invade? And what, what, if, what if God got a hold of people who are on the sex offenders list and began to transform them? Is the grace of God not big enough for that? And I was talking to a, another officer about a, an idea I had that's not gonna necessarily work out. By the way, if you'd like to know more about this and think, man, I got a burden for this, I'd like to explore this, not as a church program, but just you and a couple of your friends. I'd love to have some people take this charge up. As I explained to a another officer over the phone, 
I said, sir, I believe that no matter who people are or what they've done, the grace of Jesus can be applied to their life and they can change. They can be transformed. And as I said those words, I thought, do I believe that? I was like, I believe that. I believe that. I believe that no matter what's happened or where you've been or what you've done, Jesus died for sinners and I'm the biggest sinner that I know because I know what I've done. And the reality is you're the biggest sinner that you know because you know what you've done. There is no one who is outside of the grace of Christ for him to be able to come and help a person to be able to change. That's the essential message of what the Bible is about. That's what Hosea is about and Romans is about and Galatians is about and Revelation is about. It's the story of God rescuing wayward people and he gives them grace, not because they deserve it, but because he's God with the hope that they can be restored to him. So friend, I don't know where you are today, if you're a follower of Jesus and what it is that you need to turn from, or if you're not today and what it means to turn to him for the first time, but the message from Hosea and from the Bible is simply this. It doesn't matter who you are or where you have been. All that matters is that you know a king named Jesus who can change your life. So repentance, restoration, the text ends with reflection. So back to Hosea 14, here's how the whole thing ends. Now we're, we're done with Hosea's messages, we're done with his, his sermons, and we have a bit of a proverbial postscript here. Here's what it says. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. So the, the idea is that the writer of Hosea is setting us up with the record of these words, that there's a path that we have to choose. It's as if Hosea is saying, now that you've read my book, what will you do? And I would lay that question to you. Now that we've concluded our study of Hosea, what will you do? What will you do with this claim in verse nine that says, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. The idea is that there's two paths in life. Jesus said the same thing. There's the narrow way and the wide way. Psalm one says the same thing. There's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The Bible says at the end of the days, there's two destinations, heaven and hell. The fact is there's no third way, there's no third path. Either the ways of the Lord are right or they're not right. Either you walk in wisdom or you walk in foolishness. You walk in righteousness or you walk in transgression. The question is, which path are you on? And for that matter, which path did you lean towards over the last week? See, friends, repentance is not just about big sins. It's about a regular mindset that says, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. I'm going to continue to repent over things in my life. And as well, repentance isn't just about you. Do you know that repentance is also about the name of Jesus in the community? Both people inside and outside of the church agree hypocrites are bad. We all agree on that. But the question is, what do we do about that problem? Well, that's where your walk with Christ really matters. I'm reading a great book right now called Jesus Outside the Lines. It's a book about a way forward for those tired of taking sides by Scott Sauls. He writes this in a chapter called Hypocrite or Work in Progress. He quotes Gandhi. I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike Christ. As Gandhi saw it, Christianity was not a viable religion because it failed to impact the lives of its adherents in any meaningful way. 
So Gandhi rejected Christianity because he observed Christians in Europe, he saw racism and self-righteousness instead of love, and once he was asked to leave a church service because he was not white, and he was routinely denied rooms and tables at Christian-owned hotels and restaurants because he was a Hindu, Gandhi saw very little of Christ in the lives of Christians. Now straight up, that's true. But the question is, are you part of that problem or are you part of that solution? Because repentance isn't just what it means for your own soul, but it means for the sake of the message of the gospel in the community. There are people who will, won't ever come to, to church because of the reality in which repentance is not working out in your life and in mine. And so the burden is for us to embrace the, the beauty, the power, and the impact of what it means to really be a repentant people. On the other side of the column is Nicholas Kristof, who wrote this in, the New York, in a New York Times op-ed piece in 2011. He acknowledges that there are some self-appointed evangelical leaders who seem to be homophobic, who claim to be pro-life, but are very little, show very little concern for human life post-uterus. But then he says this, but in reporting on poverty, disease, and oppression, I've seen so many other Christians. Evangelicals are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their income to charity. More important, to go to the front lines at home or abroad when it comes to the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, human trafficking, and genocide. In fact, some of the bravest people I meet are evangelical Christians who truly live out their faith. He says, I'm not particularly religious myself, but I stand in awe of those who I've seen risk their lives in this way. That's the kind of people. That's the kind of culture. That's the kind of environment that Hosea is leaning into and that repentance points towards. The book of Hosea is about God's grace given to wayward people. He gives it to them, not because of their worth, but because he's God. And the scandal of his grace is that he is ready and willing to pour out that grace on anyone who would come to him. And when they come to him, their lives radically change. So the question that we have to ask ourselves at the end of this book is this, on which side of God's grace are you on today? Why not agree with God about the path that you're on? Why not say with him, with the book of Hosea, the ways of the Lord are right want to embrace a repenting mindset, not just from big sins, but to say, I need to be the kind of person who's continually repenting. Why, why do we think that repentance is something that's so unusual in the life of the church? Why does repentance have to be a single defining moment? True it is at conversion, but you know what? Repentance needs to be the kind of practice that we put on every single day of our lives, that we are continually repenting because of our need of God's grace. So here's my question. Why not embrace afresh and anew the beauty of God's scandalous grace by receiving the gift of repentance today? Why not agree with God and say, the ways of the Lord are right. Why not make repentance the normative reality, not the exception, so that every day becomes a defining moment in what it means to be a repenting follower of Jesus?